loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Marissa Renee Lee. Marissa is the co-founder of Supportal, a platform that makes it easier for you to respond when someone you care about is facing a life-changing challenge. Marissa previously served as the managing director of the My Brother's Keeper Alliance. Prior to joining that organization, Marissa served in a variety of roles in the Obama administration and in the White House. She began her career in finance at Brown Brothers Harriman, and during her time there, she founded the Pink Agenda, a breast cancer nonprofit in honor of her mother, Lisa. Almost a decade later, the Pink Agenda is now a national organization of young professionals committed to raising money for breast cancer research and direct care service programs in partnership with the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. She's also been a featured speaker at several forums and has written op-eds on grief, infertility, race, and economic mobility for CNN, Option B, Thrive, News One, Huffington Post, and others. She's a graduate of Harvard College, and she resides in Virginia with her husband, Matt, and their dog, Sadie. Welcome, Marissa. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, and I feel as if we could have, based on your your um amazing resume about three different shows on all the different <laughs> ways that your work is relevant to, to you know, the theme of this show. Um, because for me, I, I have a rather broad brush on the word grief. You know, every single thing that you've done, dealing with illness, de- dealing with death, um, dealing, uh, working in, in racism and, and, you know, and then of course working around support, all of those involve grief. So we're going to have plenty to talk about. This is fantastic. I'm excited. And I completely agree. I think we probably define these terms in a fairly similar way. So this is great. I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Me too. Me too. And uh, it sounds to me as if, I mean, obviously, um, you know, racism as a loss in this society, uh, you've faced that your whole life. But it sounds as if you came into an understanding around grief from your mom's illnesses um, both MS and cancer, and then her death and your, your grief following that. Would that be uh, true? Yes. And yeah, so that is, that is accurate. So let's start there. Uh, just um, sharing a bit about that for you, because that involves, to me, um, you know, the, the illness part, which wasn't necessarily going to cause her early death, uh, MS is unpredictable, but um, doesn't always lead to that. That's about being a, a caregiver, yes, uh, which is the loss of maybe who she had been to you. So maybe you can talk about that and then what what a breast cancer diagnosis, then uh, how that changed with the new diagnosis. 
Sure. So um, it's really interesting because on my end, you know, my mom got sick when I was 13 and it seemed random and pretty sudden. You know, one day she just wasn't really feeling well and couldn't seem to get better. It almost seemed like she had, you know, like the flu and it just wasn't going away and symptoms just kept increasing and getting worse. And so it wasn't, it it was very different from the cancer experience because it was this, it was this thing that happened suddenly, but at the same time, it was kind of a gradual process because Mm. to be honest, we didn't even know what we were dealing with initially. And over the course of, you know, I would say probably a year to 18 months. And this is also during early adolescence when hormones are raging and you're learning how to no longer be a child, but transitioning into becoming a teenager. And so it was just, it was a very bizarre and challenging time. And you grow up, or at least I was fortunate enough to grow up with a parent, two parents who were incredibly involved and hands-on. And my mom, even though she worked full-time, she was very much an active caretaker and involved in every aspect of my life as a child. And then suddenly, you know, when I needed her in different ways, she, she wasn't able to be as available as either of us would have hoped. And I had to shift into that role of caregiver and supporter alongside my dad. And it was, it was incredibly challenging. And I don't think, you know, being, being a kid, essentially, I don't think I processed it very effectively. And Mm -hmm. I think I, you know, you just, you don't have the emotional maturity or the language to really figure out how to navigate all of that. And so for me, I just went into sort of type A personality, practical doer mode. There wasn't a lot of reflection. There wasn't a lot of therapy or anything like that. Right. that I've learned a lot from since then. It was if you probably okay, looked like I'm, you probably looked like you were doing very well too, because you seem oh, yeah. like a very take charge type of person. And so they yeah. probably weren't that worried about you at the time. Yeah. That's what I would imagine. Yeah. No, I mean, I remember my mom trying to suggest things like therapy and support groups with other young people who had sick parents, and I just, I was not interested in any of it. So for me, I became focused on, you know, what does she need? How can I help her most effectively? And then on the other side, how can I make sure that what she's going through and what's happening at home doesn't detract from the things that I'm trying to do out in the world, which even at 14 were outsized and ridiculous being president of my class and, you know, doing drama and doing sports and starting nonprofits. Like I threw myself into all of my school and academic and extracurricular stuff because I knew that if she felt like her being sick was keeping me or my sister from accomplishing the things that she set us up for, that would just make the situation worse. And so that is how I coped with that grief. And I think this idea of continuing to find ways to be productive, for lack of a better term, when these terrible things happen, has continued to be a theme for me throughout my life. Absolutely. And, and you know, if I, if I were to pick a coping strategy, that's, that's a pretty good one, as long as it's not, <laughs> you know, as long as it, it, 
it leaves room for the other things that are happening eventually. But I, I know I interviewed someone whose parents died when he was 14 and he was talking about how he just had to sort of tuck it away. Uh, and I thought, yeah. you know, development stops for no person. You know, <laughs> you can't, yeah. um, you can't skip being a teenager just because those things are happening, but it does sound like you pretty consciously chose how you were, how are you going, how you were going to go about it. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know how conscious it was, to be honest, but that is, that is what I did. And, you know, it, it worked out for me. <laughs> uh-huh. And it, you know, it also put my mom in a place where she could feel like her not being able to be the parent that she wanted to be didn't hinder me from being able to accomplish things. So I think, I think it worked out for both of us. Yeah. And then, though, I, I have to think it must have... Um, you know, I guess there are people who can kind of do it that way permanently, but I haven't met very many of them. And I'm guessing that eventually the loss of that must have hit you in some way or some form because you're so uh, fluent in grief, I guess, is what I would say. You know, you talk about it very openly and I've read many things you've written that go in that direction. So when do you think you... Uh, began to grapple with what that had meant in your life in the more um, uh, difficult, you know, uh, not just take charge aspects. Yeah, so it's funny. I had a moment, I remember senior year in college, that fall, my grandmother, my mom's mom, passed away pretty unexpectedly. Um, You know, of course, now I don't remember exactly how old she was, but she wasn't she wasn't very old, you know, maybe 70. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking after she died that, you know, my mom might not even make it to 70 because to your earlier point, while MS doesn't generally kill people, it does wear on the body in a way that, you know, creates damage that accumulates over time. And so I, you know, I had a close relationship with all of my grandparents. I still have two grandparents around today who are 96 and 98. Mm -hmm. And I can remember thinking as a 21 year old, you know, my mom probably isn't going to have as much time as, you know, her parents or as my dad's parents because of the way that this disease is weighing on her body. Mm. And so that was the first time that I kind of grappled with the seriousness of MS. And then ironically, it was probably, gosh, six, seven months later that she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, Mm. So, you know, I had already, it it was very bizarre because I'd already sort of mentally prepared myself for my mom to not have the, you know, long, pretty healthy lives that all of my grandparents had had. And then this diagnosis happened. But nonetheless, uh, I mean, I, I work a lot in, in the cancer world. Nonetheless, that must have been kind of a stunning shock because that's on top of, it's not just wear and tear on the body. It's a whole separate diagnosis that's oh. also serious. Oh, yeah. It was, it was insane. And, you know, given the multiple sclerosis, she was in a position where she was regularly being evaluated by doctors and she had a number of symptoms leading up to the diagnosis that seemed disconnected and that, frankly, a number of doctors told her were in her head. 
And she just kept insisting that she wasn't crazy. You know, she didn't feel well. She was in a lot of pain, lots of back pain and chest pain. And ultimately she ended up going to an orthopedic surgeon who was a family friend and he promised her he would figure it out and then had to tell her that he found cancer in her bones because at that point it was already stage four and had migrated to, um, all of her like mm-hmm. spine, hip bones, rib cage, et cetera. And that's why she'd been having that horrible pain for months. So yeah, it was, it was definitely a shock to the system. And even, you know, the doctor, I, I saw him a couple weeks after he had diagnosed my mother at a shared friend's graduation party. And he said that was the hardest day of his medical career to sit there and tell a woman who was already so sick and had suffered so much that it was actually only going to get worse. Mm. And, and, you know, I'm, I, I'm a little stuck on how common it is that when doctors don't exactly know what's going on. I know they don't teach them in medical school when they don't know what's going on to say it's in your head. They must not yeah. teach I mean, that, but it's so common. <laughs> yeah. It's especially yeah. with women, maybe particularly with women of color. You know, there's there's yeah. just a sort of yeah. blindness that that is so heartbreaking because it yeah. puts off treatment. You know, uh, all kinds of bad stuff comes out of that. So, uh, uh, my my heart ached yeah, at that terrible. moment in in your in what you were describing. Um, um, yeah, and then was, did she, awful. did she go into treatment then at that point? Yeah. So this, this all happened the week that I was graduating from college. So, you know, I knew something was wrong and took some time away from school, post exams, pre-graduating, spent some time at home, with her and my dad and my godmother, who was her best friend. And went to a bunch of doctors to figure out, you know, what are the next steps here? What's the immediate course of action? And the number one priority at that point was just reducing her pain because she Mm -hmm. had been in so much pain for so many months and just trying to get her to a place where she could have a better quality of life and then putting together a care plan that took into account the fact that her cancer at that point was treatable and not curable. And so we need to be really thoughtful about the options and how aggressive to go because at the end of the day, you know, she had a very low five-year survival rate even. So we wanted whatever time she had left to be as positive and pleasant as possible. And so she, we actually split her treatment between, you know, doctors in our hometown who we trusted and some specialists a Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York and they worked together with her neurologists and all of her related MS doctors to put something together that wouldn't make the MS worse. Um, mm. But it was really complicated and it took months. So I ended up taking almost a full year off after college just to help manage it all because it was, it was a lot. And that would be notable for a, for a person wired the way you seem to be, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, um, full forward, I guess, um, yeah. you know, 
<laughs> onward, onward, uh, that must have been so disorienting to go from, you know, all, all, all steam ahead to um, that kind of, uh, you know, less, more just being there place. Yeah, <clears throat> um, it was hard, but, you know, it was... It was also very all-consuming a lot of the time, so it was hard, but it felt like I was busy, and again, just going back to productivity, being productive the whole time, and my mom and I were always close, so I enjoyed being around her and spending time with her, but it was it was definitely disorienting and weird, and some of the things that made it better, you know, I just, I found lots of ways to keep myself busy beyond just helping take care of her and figure out that diagnosis. And then I also had some friends and some cousins who ended up being back at home that first year after college as well. So I had a social network around and I think had I not had that, it would have been a lot harder. But the fact that there were a handful of us who after college, you know, we're still kind of figuring it out and people were commuting to the city and living at home. So like I had people around to be with when it was just a little bit too much. Um, I think that helped a lot. And sort of there, I can sort of make a direct line between that experience of feeling supported in various ways, either by distraction or by, by, uh, you know, love and help, uh, I can make sort of a direct line between that and, and your platform, Support All, which is about how to help and making sure that the help you offer is is um, resonant with what a person might need in such challenging situations uh, that, you know, seems as if you must have learned a lot from being helped at that point in your life. I learned a whole lot. And, you know, you learn very quickly in these incredibly difficult moments who really gets it and who doesn't. And one of the things I realized as a part of that process is there are people who really care and just either don't get it or don't know what to do. It's not that they're necessarily bad people. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, I ended up being surrounded by a lot of people who, even though we were really young, you know, I look back and I think, oh my God, I can't believe so-and-so did that or, you know, this one thought to bring that or whatever. But as young as we were, people figured it out and did things that were supportive and thoughtful and also just really appropriate for where we were in life. You know, by the time we got to the place where my mom was really sick and, you know, going to pass away, and even after she passed away, I was splitting my time between a job in finance in New York and, you know, living in downtown Manhattan and then spending like three, sometimes four days a week in upstate New York at my parents' house. So doing the two hour long train ride, working from the train, from my mom's couch, from her hospital room, you know, wherever. Mm. And so the things that people, and I was single, you know, I was 23, 24 years old. Um, and so the things that people did, like they were just so incredibly thoughtful. Like, you know, I remember one of my, can we come back to that after the break? Cause I don't want to shorten that. That's, that's so crucial. Uh, so let's come back to one of your girlfriends after our break and listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at, um, the good grief page at voice America. And you can find Marissa Renee Lee at meet support all.com. 
Back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Are you living a healthy and fit lifestyle? It's not just related to your physical well-being. It also means a healthier mind, confidence, improved health, stamina, and fitness. Talking with Tremaine brings it all to you. Host Tremaine Ellis, along with her husband and co-host David Ellis, will offer support, advice, guidance, and motivation to keep you in your best shape, both physically and mentally. Talking with Tremaine can be heard live every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Marissa Lee about her website, Supportal, but more than that, how she came to be interested in um, supporting supporters and, and helping them to find, uh, find the best ways to offer support. Um, we had a slight connection problem, so let me check if Marissa is with me right at this moment. Yes, Cheryl, can you hear me okay? Yes, I, I hear you great. Fantastic. <laughs> We're connected. I didn't want to go on asking you a question if you weren't there. <laughs> I am here. I am well, you, here. Before the break, you were about to tell us a friend about a particular girlfriend who um, offered something uh, really valuable to you when you were going back and forth to your mom's uh, as she was dying and trying to navigate a whole bunch of different things going on in your life. Would you, would you share that with us? Yeah. So I just want to say there were so many wonderful things that people did and I, I, it's, it's almost too much to list, but one day I should write them all down because I just, I was so very grateful. But I remember this one time sitting in my mom's hospital room at Sloan Kettering in New York. And one of my girlfriends was getting ready to graduate from uh, FIT, the Fashion Institute in New York. And she was literally on the floor of my mom's hospital room doing her final project that she had to complete for graduation. She brought food, she brought wine, and she was just working away, hanging out with us because (laughs) I think she knew 
that I needed company. And it was, it was such a, in some ways, like such a small thing, you know, like grab food, show up, hang out. But I realized that it was disruptive to her schedule. She had something really important that she was working on and still she took the time out to spend time with us. And it just, it really meant a lot. And we're still close to this day. I think that points out something extremely important and something I noticed, uh, you know, traveling around on your website and your Instagram that uh, often it isn't any big grand thing. No. And often it's not talking. (laughs) You know, we think we need to find the perfect words or we need to say just the right thing or we need to be wise or whatever it might be. But often it's things like that where the person just shows up and does something for you. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, it's, it's the showing up, it's the doing something, and it is often the listening to the hard stuff. You know, you yes, have the listening. Through, yes, yeah. Like you've been through a lot of challenging things, and they are they are hard to talk about. And so when you're in a place where you feel comfortable talking about them, having someone just listen no matter how uncomfortable it might make them is a really big deal and that would be particularly true you know my wife died when I was 42 and uh, she was sick for 10 years and during that time our community really uh, because everybody was going through the potential loss of her right yeah so we all got more comfortable and and um, by the end, the people that were most with us were, which were a lot of people, we had great support network. They kind of knew how to do that, yeah. but most of the other people didn't. <laughs> you know, the oh, people yeah. who hadn't had that experience. Now I'm 66. More and more people have had experiences that taught them how to do that. And, yes. and so when things come along now, it actually is quite different uh, than it was when, when I was young. And I imagine it's, it's even more notable that your friends figured out how to do it when most of them probably had not had really big challenges like that. Oh, we were babies. And it's, it's so crazy. Like I said, when I look back, you know, people doing things like, realizing that if I'm up at my parents' house for three days and I get back late at night and I have to go to work on, you know, a big banking platform on Wall Street the next morning, I might not have clothes because I haven't been to the dry cleaners. And so people recognize, you know, like these little things like recognizing, oh, she probably needs someone to pick up her dry cleaning and maybe someone to drop it off. (laughs) <laughs> you know, my roommates at the time, it, it's such, it's such a small thing, but had they not done that, I mean, there were days when I didn't have a plan for those kinds of things because I was barely getting by, you know, taking care of her, grieving, full of depression and anxiety, not sleeping and still trying to maintain a pretty intense job. You know, I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I was crazy. They were all crazy. And then I got a really good piece of advice, um, sort of toward the end of my mom's life when we realized she was no longer going to undergo active treatment. You know, it was, it was a matter of six months to a year was what they told us. And I got this news maybe a week before I turned 25. So still mm-hmm. pretty young. And I was, I was feeling anxiety about so many things, but one of my friends 
mothers is also a therapist. And I was just talking to her about everything. And one of the things that was hard for me, you know, I was in my early 20s, living in New York, running a nonprofit, working on Wall Street. Like I was super social and single and, you know, like I wanted to be out and about and my normal self, but I just had a hard time like maintaining commitments, making commitments, getting together the energy to go out to happy hour or whatever on a Thursday night. And so she suggested that I send, you know, my friends, like whoever I wanted to reach out to a note, just being like, this is what I'm dealing with. I can't commit to things right now, but I do still want to be included in things. And if you want to like do something to be helpful, she suggested that I appoint someone else in my inner circle to sort of be the responder for people who wanted to do stuff and didn't know what to do. And that was the best advice. That's, that's really interesting because, uh, you know, since we had 10 years to learn how to run a support network, that, that turned out to be one of the most crucial things that we didn't have to ask everybody to try to get something done. Yeah. That we had someone appointed that we asked, hey, we need this. And she found someone. Oh, my gosh. When we discovered that, it was like night and day. Such a difference maker. Such a difference maker. Because it's not just about, you know, obviously, if you need help, you have to get over the, the potential loss of pride in asking. But that we had gotten over that a long time ago. What we you couldn't get over, yeah, we had to. Uh, what we couldn't get over was asking a, a bunch of people who couldn't do it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, or a few who, in. Yeah, or who might be weird when you ask or whatever. Yeah, so having yes. having someone appointed. Well, and the other thing that just gets to be a lot when you're in these kinds of positions is sort of managing the incoming offer of support. Because there are a lot of people who will want to help and who will want to show up for you, I've found, but they don't know what to do. So having somebody else take on that burden, and I am very, very lucky. I have 11 roommates from college. They're all varying degrees of type A and super intense. And unfortunately, by the time I lost my mom or was getting ready to lose my mom, one of the other girls had already lost a parent as well. And so they were, and they all knew my mom and, you know, had been around while she was sick, et cetera. So they were like ready to go and super organized and basically had me make a spreadsheet of all of the things I could think of. And people just started taking things. You know, my mom had been really, really sick, but she wanted to figure out if there was some way she could donate her organs or donate her body to science. And I obviously did not have the capacity to figure out any of that. So that (laughs) became somebody else's job, you know, like everything from like, what am I going to wear to the funeral? Because again, young and vain, like I still cared about that. That became somebody else's job, like everything, everything you can think of waterproof makeup in case I start crying, I would still like to look good. That became <laughs> the really important stuff, right, oh, Marissa? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the critical stuff. The critical stuff. Uh, so, For yeah. sure. Very lucky. Very lucky. Well, and then, um, you know, beyond this, this very high-powered finance job, the things you've done have definitely been towards the um, healing, nonprofit, social interest 
uh, there are many words for that, but um, <laughs> philanthropic, etc. cetera. Uh, and I wonder if you connect going in that direction in your life instead of the, you know, high powered yeah. finance direction with those experiences. I mean, some is directly connected, like starting Supportal, but it would seem to me that you took a turn a bit. Would that be fair to say? So it's funny. Um, that is what it looks like, but really finance was kind of the brief detour from all of this like social justice, social impact work. And what happened was, you know, I went to Harvard with very little sense of how the world worked as it pertains to, you know, money and power and governance and, you know, higher level decision making. You know, my mom barely graduated from high school. My dad went to community college. I went to a large public high school. I just, I had no idea how the world worked at a certain level mm. until you land at a place like Harvard and suddenly you're friends with people whose parents are the presidents of banks and who have, you know, three homes and private planes and things that you didn't even like really think existed <laughs> right. outside of them. Didn't movies, really believe you know? it, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, imagine. Growing up, I thought the person who was wealthy, you know, their family owned a couple of car dealerships. And that was my definition of wealth because it's all that I knew. And so um, I ended up becoming friends with some folks from the Middle East. I started college on September 12th, 2001. So at a really interesting time in terms of global affairs and, you know, America's mm. world. And Speaking so, of grief. Yeah. I mean, communal was, grief. <laughs> I, I will never forget that we were we were getting ready to start classes. You know, it was the last day of orientation, and I got up late, and my roommate and I were rushing to get to the dining hall, and someone said, "You need to turn on your TV." And so, all of that to say, I ended up pursuing a joint degree in government and Middle Eastern studies, and spent my time in college. You know, all my internships were focused on how do we solve problems more efficiently, more effectively? You know, how do we rethink how we think about the Middle East? How do we think about different political ideologies? All this stuff. I get to senior year, I write a thesis about Arab nationalism and the impact that that like set of theories had on decision-making in the Middle East, only to get to the end of my research and my thesis and realize actually economics are the most important thing or were the most important thing in here in this case. And so at that point I realized I didn't know anything about economics. Math to this day, my husband makes fun of me, it's not a strength. I didn't take a single econ class in college or anything business related. And so suddenly I'm graduating and realizing that I should probably learn about how frankly, how wealthy people make decisions and how people in power think about economics and the economy and just wealth in general, mm. if I want to understand how to change things. And so, so, it, so it was sort of a, a self-study course, yeah, your time and, in, the, <laughs> in the finance world. <laughs> yeah, and I just, I got very lucky. I landed at a bank that was very big on teaching young people and investing in young people and I learned so much. They put you through a six month, basically mini MBA program. And then they let young people pitch things to partners 
who have, you know, 20, 30 years of investment experience. So you're sitting across the table from someone who at your age, 20, 30 years ago, had your client and you're telling them, you know, how much of their money they should invest in your energy trader, coffee trader, cocoa, you know, whatever it was. And so I did that. I absolutely loved it. I loved the people. They were just wonderful human beings. But, you know, while I was there, I lost my mom and that just changed everything. And suddenly I was in this place of, I just turned 25. My mom just died. She died when she was barely 49. Like, what if that happens to me? What yeah. do I want to be doing? Um, so, yeah. So there, there was an intersection that was, uh, it sort of sped you up on, on heading out of that working for a bank yeah. part of your story. Yeah. Yeah. into, okay, what's my life's calling? What am I doing? What are you yes. doing? And then uh, into somewhere in there comes along, you know, it's interesting you're talking about getting more familiar with, with power structures and who makes decisions and all that. And then you work for uh, the president for some period of time. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes fortunately and sometimes unfortunately, one of the powerful, most powerful spots in the world in a way. Yeah. Um, Maybe in more than a way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it it is definitely a place of power. Um, It was, it was crazy. You know, I, I wrote a journal entry right before my mom died um, about how I felt like I wasn't where I was supposed to be and where I was supposed to be is like with this guy on the campaign trail, you know, trying to get him elected. And that's what I really wanted. And I knew that I was where I needed to be, even if it wasn't where I wanted to be from a career perspective. And so I put those thoughts um, on ice basically And once I started really thinking about, you know, my life and what I wanted to do and where I thought I was supposed to be, I just dove headfirst into harassing anyone and everyone I knew who could help me get a job working in the Obama administration. It's interesting because I intersect this with... um you know, I've I've now interviewed hundreds of people about what came out of grief for them. Mm-hmm. And one thing that seems very, very, very common that relates to my experience, but many other people, is that you kind of make decisions differently or uh, come to what you do differently, less cognitively or intellectually after you experience loss. So... You know, I hear that there's sort of, you had a drive to do blank, and then you just sort of saw how it would turn out, you know, (laughs) followed your own breadcrumbs, as it were. Um, Is that how it felt to you, or am I, I, uh, you know, projecting something on you there? No, I think I I hear from a lot of people who've been through these horrible, life-changing challenges that they do have a tendency to do two things. One they make a lot of things very black and white. You know, you are, you are much more clear on your priorities. You're often much more clear about certain relationships, et cetera. 
And they also tend to bring about a certain element of, I don't want to say fearlessness because I feel like that's almost too trendy right now, but that's sort of what it is, you know, in my mind. And well, I, I'm not going to say it because it involves an expletive, but you're just kind of like, whatever, <laughs> like, I'm just like, what do I have to lose? Like, I've already lost so much. Yes. So I'm just going to go for it. Maybe we're talking about uh, what maybe I would call courage, because it's not That's that there isn't. Word. <laughs> it, there, there, it's not that there isn't fear in courage. It's it's yeah, just, you just care less what the hell it. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's that fits with what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's familiar. Um so then uh after Obama, which I, I'm sure that's a whole show or two. <laughs> <laughs> I have some longing uh, to hear all those stories, but oh that's for over drinks. Oh that's goodness. for over drinks. Next time you're in next next time you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, we'll, we'll talk about for that. Sure. But for um, sure. but in the meantime, um, then afterwards, you uh, you started working with them or him, I guess, on My Brother's Keeper Alliance, which, um, of course, they've done done um, big gatherings in the Bay Area. You know, I've yeah. certainly heard about that work and uh, just think it's so vital and and so present with me in a place like Oakland. You know, how, how do people get supported in a situation where they're under threat all the time, yeah. you know? To me, that is a great description. Uh, and that, unfortunately, indeed. And so I do connect that you're doing that work. You know, sometimes I think I make too strong a connection between what people do and their grief. But uh, to me, you have to be able to uh, to stay with really painful things to do that work. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it is work that I sort of came to, I don't want to say accidentally as a woman of color, because it's no, it's no accident. Not an accident. Yeah. Um, but it was just, it was a, it was a bunch of things happening at once. You know, I remember being in the white house, I worked for the domestic policy council with a focus on urban affairs, which was heavily focused on, you know, how do we reinvest in these communities that have been disinvested in for so long? And how do we make sure that we give people access to opportunity? You know, that was always the way the president talked about it. Not everyone is going to or should or needs to go to Harvard, but every young person who has that set of like skills, abilities, capacity, et cetera, should have access to that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so that was our work. And one day, and I remember it was one of those horrible, humid DC days where you're just melting. You're like, why did I even bother getting dressed today? This is disgusting. And all of a sudden there was this sort of anxious chatter. The president was going to deliver a speech in the briefing room and no one knew what he was going to say. That's generally like not a good thing. Not usually great. that means something. It usually means something terrible has happened in the world. You know, so at least like, it was unusual during the Obama years. Yeah, true. 
True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. An unscripted press briefing. That was not something that we did very often. Um, and so we're like, what is going on? What is going on? And then like right before he goes live, someone says it's about us like it is going to be about our work and you're like oh my god like now you're really like on edge and i remember we sat and we watched and he talked about how if he had a son he would look like trayvon martin and it was the day of the george zimmerman verdict and so Mm -hmm. in and in that moment he said i don't know what we're going to do but like we have to do something we're going to do something so like stay tuned basically and then we all looked at each other like do you know what we're supposed to do do you know what we're supposed to do and we figured it out and that became my brother's keeper and by the time we launched my brother's keeper i had shifted to a different role in the building where i was focused on business engagement and you know getting companies um, who were excited about things that we were doing more connected to the work that we were doing and so in this case it was getting some CEOs to make real commitments around supporting boys and young men of color. And it was, I mean, it was hard work, particularly, you know, even in some of the pre-Trump years, like just some of the things that have happened across the country, like it was just, it was really, really hard work. But what I always thought was so much harder was being one of the organizations that, you know, we partnered with and worked alongside who were actually doing the work on the front lines in these communities to support these young people. Like that to me has always felt so much harder. And so, you know, when it would weigh on us, we would both remember like as a team, you know, why are we here? And like, think about how much harder it is for these folks who are on the ground in these communities. Like we have no idea what hard means. Mm-hmm. And yet I know from the hard, hard, you know, different hard, hards, but um, that there's also, you know, it, for instance, uh, my daughter was a part of an organization out here called Destiny Arts um, mm-hmm. and an arts, social activist arts um, organization. She was part of a dance company Um Lots, they, they, you know, sit together and talk and support each other and then put on performances they've written, that kind of, and, and so much pain would be in those rooms of young people, but then they would make such beauty out of that shared pain. And I know that made a a huge difference in the life of my daughter and, um, you know, the many, many young people that came through, that's an organization on the ground here that's doing that kind of work. And, you know, the the people that she connected with then, she's making movies with now. She's, you know, it it continues as a force in your life when you've been nurtured that way. Yeah. So it's also, it's painful and it's also very inspiring sometimes to do that, that work on the ground work. It, it no, it it is. It it is definitely inspiring, but it's it just I I realized at a young age that I couldn't do that and also deal with the various grief related things in my own life. Mm, yes. And yet so now you you're doing um I'm going to fast forward a little to Supportal since um that's the way we met. You know, I saw your platform which is so uh, 
to use a word we just were used, inspiring. And there, there's something about the fact that you have people share, people who've, who've experienced challenges, just share the one or two things that really made a difference. Uh, yeah. That, that is so um, uh, freeing for people who are trying to support, I feel. It's not big and compli- complicated. No, the, no. You know, what I remember is someone made me dinner every week. What I remember is someone put me in a bathtub. You know, all these things that uh, sometimes are very huge, like my husband gave me Friday nights every week. Or, But, you know, that takes a lot of consistency. <laughs> but um, they aren't all big things, are they? Um, no, they're, they're, often, they're often small but thoughtful things. And I realize there are two things that mean a lot to people when they're going through tough times. One is just knowing that you're not forgotten. And maybe this is just me again, as a fairly social creature, the people who I'm not that close to who continue to send the text message, Hey, how are you doing? Like just checking in, how are you feeling? Like, how are the holidays going? You know, whatever that means a great deal to me. And then it's the people who do know you well and find the things to send or to buy for you or whatever that they know will mean a lot to you because they know, you know, like they're, they are your good friend and they know you. So, um, you know, I, I love food and I love wine and I love bourbon. And if you know me, you know those things. Like those are the, after my family and my dog, who's my family, like those are my loves. And so, you know, one of my, one of my husband's friends, you know, from when he was much younger, found this rare bottle of bourbon that we haven't been able to find for a couple of years and sent it to me. And, you know, one of my girlfriends who was close to my mom and around when I was in New York, we worked together at the bank she sent a box of really fancy cheese from Murray's cheese shop, which is like the best cheese shop. One of the best cheese shops in the world, as far as I'm concerned. And that was just like, which is, which is all that mattered is, is as far as you're concerned. Yeah. 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 You know, we're going to run out of time, but I, but I, I hope someday we'll have another hour because I know that beyond the, the things we've already talked about, you've, um, experienced in infertility, which is a yes. whole other type of grief and um, and a sort of uncertain grief, you know, in terms of like, where do we go from here kinds of um, questions and all that. Many other things in your life that have been losses. And I'm really interested, and maybe you have a couple of minutes you can say about this, in how uh, previous experiences, for me, previous experiences factor into uh, both how I experience another loss, a a subsequent loss, and how other people respond. Uh, And I wonder if if you've been aware of that as well. A hundred percent, yes. So two things. One, in terms of how other people respond, you know, my crew knows what I need because they were there, you know, in some cases when I was growing up and my mom was sick, when I was in college and she was sick, when I was in my early 20s and I was taking care of her and then she died, like they know what 
is going to make me feel better. You know, like they know your love language. They know your favorite things. Like they just, they know what to do and what not to do, frankly. Um, (laughs) And they know that like they're, you know, what I always say to people, I know I say what not to do, but like, it's not even, that's almost not even a thing because I feel like what you remember most, and I'm curious if you agree, is the people or are the people who didn't do anything. Mm. I, I feel like I have blocked the handful of people who, you know, through the fertility stuff were like, have you considered adoption? Well, of course, Captain Obvious. Like, adoption. like <laughs> you know, like I, I know, I know it's a thing, like, thanks. Um, but you know, like, like you can shrug it off because you know that they have the best of intentions, but what always feels the most hurtful to me are the people, particularly if they're people who you felt like you were close to, Yes. So that's, yeah, you know, I don't know if you yes. That. Well, I do. Absolutely. And I want to say that, that my, my um, go-to story about this is a woman in one of my cancer groups and everyone was talking about how inadequate people's responses were, the, the people that were not showing up, right? The people that were not saying anything about yeah. their diagnosis. And this one woman said, I haven't experienced that. And I'm like, you haven't? (laughs) And so I asked more, you know. Well, it turned out her mother had died two years before. Oh, yeah. And all the people who hadn't responded to that Oh, they they were out of her life. Or they're out of your life. They were out of her life. She just (laughs) said, no, I don't really want, they're not in my close circle, and I don't care if they show up or not. They're out. Right. So I can imagine with you, uh, you know, and that that was the answer. That was why she wasn't experiencing any of that, because Um, the people in her network knew how to show up. Um, And and they'd also accepted this thing. One of the memes on your on your Instagram, I just loved. There are many that are wonderful, but this one, everything does not happen for a reason. Sometimes really shitty things happen for no reason at all. I love that. And it speaks to that. Like there's nothing to fix. There's we've if I'm in the situation, I've thought of everything. Right. You don't have to. I don't need that. I'll you ask you if I need help with the research, right? So you especially don't want that like right after the thing happens. So like we found out, you know, we were pregnant and then we weren't very quickly. And we found that out on a Monday from our doctor. Within four to five hours, three of my roommates from college who thankfully still lived in the area had descended on our house. You know, someone had the red wine, somebody else had the whiskey, somebody else brought salty snacks, we ordered Chinese food, somebody brought homemade cookie dough from their own kitchen, Mm. and was just like, I'm turning on the oven, and we ate too many cookies and drank too much wine and whiskey, and we watched American Ninja Warrior, which is... (laughs) Like, not a show I watch regularly. Um, perfect for very, the moment. It's perfect for the moment. It is actually quite inspiring. Um, and, you know, there were there was none of that, like, it's going to be okay, or, like, you've got this. It was just like, we're just going to drink and watch TV and eat snacks. And, and everyone is going to understand that we don't have to move on right now. And maybe we never have to. I could talk to you, Marissa, for a whole other hour, but we've (laughs) run out of time. (laughs) So I hope you'll take me up on the drink. It'll have to be bourbon, obviously. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for coming on. (laughs) Thank you so much, Cheryl. And you can find Marissa at meetsupportal.com. 
Thank you very much for being with me today. This has been Good Grief. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.